I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. A warning. This episode contains references to suicide. Well, my name is Matt. Nilesher, that's the hard one. It's hard to pronounce for everybody, uh, even Swedish people. Meet Mats Nilesher. He's a music journalist from Malmo, Sweden, who started hosting a radio show called Soul Corner in 1978. In the ensuing years, he's interviewed generations of black music icons and superstars, from Ray Charles and Curtis Mayfield to Young Thug, Future, and Vince Staples. One November day, some years ago, Mats was in New York City. It was a cloudy day, and uh, I was running around the city in a taxi, trying to get from interview to interview. Mats was trying to book something with soul legend Gladys Knight, who he'd been chasing after since the late 80s. I'm still trying to get that damned Gladys Knight interview. That never happened, and still never happened. Thanks, Gladys. That day, though, Mats got word about a younger artist he was also eager to talk to a West Coast rapper who happened to be in New York. There was a message from uh, the management and the record company that if you come here in 20 minutes, he's here, you can do it. So Mats rushes over to the record company, where this 23-year-old, who has the world's attention, is waiting for him in the corner of a boring conference room. And he was sitting there waiting, full of electricity, sort of, and with that intense presence. I felt this urgent need in him to, to, to sort of tell the story, if he were allowed. You thug in this business, you thug legit. That's how you thug worldwide, that's how you blow up. The game is nothing if you don't apply yourself and you don't rise to different levels. So we all came in on one level, and now we're moving up block by block. The year was 1994, and the artist in the room with Mats was rapper Tupac Shakur. If you analyze those words uh, in the interviews, he, he's, uh, it's poetry, full out. It's contagious, you know what I'm saying? This thug life shit we spin is contagious because it's spirits. We ain't even really rapping. We just letting our dead homies tell stories for us, you know what I'm saying? Just over 20 years later, Matt's interview with Tupac would become a crucial component, maybe the most crucial component, of Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly. On an album that finds Kendrick communing with his elders in so many ways, no ghost looms larger than Tupac's. And his voice, repurposed from this interview, will provide the album with its uncertain coda. It was like he knew that these words would fly into another reality and sort of transcend life and death, time and space. 
If you're totally metaphysical about it, maybe he knew. From Higher Ground, this is The Big Hit Show. I'm Alex Papadimus. Over the course of this season, we've gone deep on key songs from Tupimba Butterfly, exploring the ideas behind them, the team that created them, and the way they both reflected and shaped a turbulent moment in American culture. In this episode, we're looking at Mortal Man, the epic 12-minute track that closes out the album. It's a song that turns out to be touched by real-world tragedy. But it's also the point where Kendrick reiterates some of the questions he's been wrestling with throughout the album about leadership and an artist's responsibility to his community and the dangers of hero worship. And then he turns these questions back on his audience, saying, okay, maybe I could be the leader you want me to be, but will you follow me? Or if things go sideways, will you abandon me? Chapter 5. Spirits. Kendrick works from the morning until the morning. Like, I'm not kidding you. This is Rocky, a musician and producer who spent several months working with Kendrick on tracks for Tupimba Butterfly. He produced the song I, co-produced the track Institutionalized, and became very familiar with Kendrick's work habits. It was this one time where I showed up to the studio and I thought I beat him. I thought I beat him to the studio because it was early. I get to the studio and I didn't see his um, car out front. So I walk in and I'm just in the lobby and I'm just waiting around for people to get there thinking, you know, the door's locked and whatever. I see Kendrick walk out of the studio and I'm like, where was, where do you, you was in the studio? He was like, yeah, I was, I've been in, I've been in there. And I'm sitting here like this dude really just like lives and breathes the studio. Like it, that was, I was like, wow. In early 2015, as the album neared completion, the marathon night in night out recording sessions continued in the studio and in other studios, and sometimes at people's houses, which was where Mortal Man started. Here's Soundwave, Kendrick's longtime producer. Mortal Man was probably one of the last records we did. It was just literally me and Thundercat again. The track first came together in a jam session between Soundwave and bassist Thundercat at Thundercat's house. I just remember it was extremely sad. Like, I just remember making these drum loops and, um going through a bunch of different sounds with Thundercat. Thundercat was drawn to that. He was like, bro, play that again. And he just started doing these guitar riffs on top of it. As soon as he did that, I was like, oh, this is special. Like, this is tearing at me. It's tearing at my soul. I don't know what this is. That pulls up. And he just starts to mumble lyrics on top of it. And I didn't know, I had no clue what he was saying. But when I heard, when Ish hit the fan, are you still a fan? I was like, bro, that's it. This is literally the last song. This feels like the last song. And I guess he tailored it to be the last song. I had no idea it was going to go into what it went to. 
until we did the last piece and we were just still scrambling like is this song even going to make it and when we added strings to it we knew for a fact that this was it and to this day the strings on there some of my favorite strings too there's a story behind those strings and like many aspects of Tempimpa Butterfly it starts with multi-instrumentalist and producer Terrace Martin I called Kamasi, that's my partner. Terrace was in high school when he first played in a band with saxophonist Kamasi Washington. When Terrace called him, Kamasi was finishing his 2015 album, The Epic. Terrace got to hear some of it. He played these songs, those songs that came to be the epic, with these lush string arrangements. And I'm like, who did the strings? He said, I did. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, that's what I studied at UCLA. And uh, he was like, man, I'm working on, on a new Kendrick record. I said, we done strings for anybody else? He said, no. I said, oh, I need you on the Kendrick Lamar record. That's even daring that you ain't done shit else, like, except your strings. Because these are great. Kamasi Washington. You know, I got there, um, basically they were just looking to, to add some stuff to Mortal Man. So it was kind of crunch time. Here's your oatmeal and water. Get the charts done. <laughs> we got two weeks. To Pimp a Butterfly was set to drop in March. They were still working on Mortal Man in February. But despite this pressure, it was still fun to be there, even toward the end. Here's Thundercat. And my daughter was interested in playing piano, you know, and so I'm like, hey, it doesn't get any better than this. Sit down. <laughs> Pianist Robert Glasper. Thundercat's daughter was sitting next to me when I did it. And he was like, sit next to him. So in, in my piano booth, it was just me and, and her. <laughs> It was like a family reunion. Thundercat, Kamasi, Terrace, who'd known each other forever, surrounded in turn by other musicians they'd also known forever. Childhood friend Brandon's playing upright. Rob's playing keys. You know, you know, Trevor's on drums. Doggone Kamasi's sitting over here. You know, I'm over here eating Lifesavers and farting in the bathroom and uh, ordering beef stroganoff. <laughs> no, you know, but, you know, I'm there and we're all there. So here's this family of musicians in a room. They're making one last song for an album they already know is going to be amazing. And they're almost finished when the players get some tragic news. Zane Musa, a saxophonist who'd been playing music with Thundercat, Terrace, and Kamasi since they were teenagers, had died by suicide in Fort Lauderdale. Here's Terrace. So Mortal Man, we're doing that session. And we get a call like, hey man, the homie Zane just jumped off uh ah man damn we doing a record like hey yo zane just ran off a fucking building and like fell but he ain't dead and we kind of like we not laughing at all but we like oh shit that motherfucker he probably broke an arm man let's call this motherfucker tomorrow man let's get back to writing we had the expectation that he was going to survive and we were going to have to like go pull pull up on him you know what I mean reel him back in you know and we're all waiting to hear what's going on it's like within a matter of the same amount of time that we get the call and shortly after that he's gone and it was eerie and I remember Steven came in it was, it was, he was like hey, he's, he's, he's out of here he's dead I don't know how many other people in the room 
really knew Zane like that. But yeah, it was a really, 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 really challenging moment. We had to pause. And I think everybody starts looking at their phones. Everybody's realizing, you know, like, oh man, he he's trying to reach out to talk to somebody, you know, in different ways and different, you know, different points and periods. You know, you look at the, was the last thing you said. This is a uh, May first, two thousand fourteen, at three thirty nine a.m. This is Zane. Terrace Martin still has some of the last text messages he got from Zane. Hey me yo yo i'm faded can you call me would be nice to talk to you zane was long-winded and i didn't want to talk to zane that night because i was busy and we had just partied and he had just got kind of kind of plastered and just and just was just kind of kind of out of pocket and i i, I had to check him with love and you know and he felt the way about that and he said uh i'm faded can you call me on this number it's important we talk before we go to bed. Been knowing you since 14. I'm on a plane, bro. Coming back to L.A. now. I lied to him. But I hit back. I said, you okay? Something must have bothered me. Like, wait, you okay? Always okay. I'm always okay. Just want to talk. Safe travels. Hit me whenever. December 28th. 2014, can you call me? I'm anxious to talk to you. Hit me, Terrace. Mortal Man is not about Zane Musa. It was a sad song before it even had words. And when Kendrick writes his rhymes for it, they're about Kendrick. When shit hit the fan, is you still a fan? When shit hit the fan, is you still a fan? The ghost of Mandela, hope my flow stay propelling. Let these words be your earth and moon, you consume every message. As I lead this army, make room for mistakes and depression. And with that being said, my nigga, let me ask this question. Will shit hit the fan, is you still a fan? Will shit hit the fan? As I lead this army, make room for mistakes and depression. Counting the repeating spoken interludes, this is the seventh time Kendrick's mentioned depression on this album. And after that, he's rapping about our individual responsibility to one another, asking questions like, how clutch are the people that say they love you? Who got your best interest? Like, how much are you dependent? How clutch are the people that say they love you and who pretended? How tough is your skin when they turn you in? Do you show forgiveness? What brush do you bend with dust in your shoulders from being offended? What kind of den did they put you in when the lions start hissing? What kind of bridge did they burn revenge in your mind when it's mentioned you? And this is the song that the musicians in this story are recording on the day they find out that Zane has passed. The last song on an album where Kendrick reckons with deaths in his own circle was Survivor's Guilt, with the question of what he could have done for the people he lost. This is the work these musicians have to walk back in the room and finish while thinking about Zane. Kamasi Washington again. You can't help with the, the thoughts of like what you could have done to maybe help them just start flooding in. You know, at the same moment where you're, you know, working on one of the most beautiful albums, you, you know, one of, the, one of the most beautiful pieces of art that you've ever been a part of. So it's like a weird, it was a real weird, real, real difficult juxtaposition to kind of be in. Thundercat again. I think it still haunts 
these are actual moments that changed my life personally from losing Zane to a couple other friends. This was, it was like changing my heart, you know? And when I listen to that song, it still weighs the same as it did when we first created it because it's like I can see and feel and hear the emotions that were in that moment. Even for the song to be called Mortal Man, it was like, good Lord. Did you think about your own mortality in that? Yeah, this was the introduction to your, you know, the doors are open, man. Like, you know, it's not the part where your parents aren't feeding you vegetables. It's like you are, you can die. This is your, you, that's your friend. You're him. That's, that could be you. What makes him different than you? You guys do the same thing. You guys live the same way. You feel the same things. You play your instruments with the same passion. Yeah, that was eye-opening. Terrace, Kamasi, and Thundercat all said Zane was one of the best sax players working, and they would know. He had just finished a tour when he died, and they'd been hoping he could get back to L.A. in time to play on Tempipa Butterfly. I think Zane would have destroyed, like, <laughs> like in a good way, Zane would have d- annihilated the record. <laughs> yeah, he was uh, astounding on his instrument. Yeah, so much music in him. And, uh, if you got a friend that, that you might think is going through something, don't, don't just assume that they can get through it. You know what I mean? Sometimes you got, sometimes people need help. See, through that I learned you don't, you don't ignore anybody. You pay attention to the drunk, high, loaded conversations. You don't take nothing for granted. The experience of losing a friend while finishing a record is clearly one that none of these guys will ever forget. But even if that hadn't happened, everyone in those rooms already knew the album they were working on was unlike anything they'd done before. It's why they were able to give as much as they gave to it, and why they kind of had to take some time to recover when the record was finished and it was finally all over. Here's Thundercat again. It's almost like... uh... It felt like I had wrung a towel out. Like I was just like, I have nothing left, you know? And I was happy about that. But it was, they were like tears of joy, you know? Like I'd never, I felt like a, pur- a purpose. I felt like that there was a purpose. From every time I'd see Terrace walking around laughing to, you know, Kamasi pulling up, that excitement that I would see when we were kids to, to sitting on the couch, you know, to, staying at the studio until they like, man, we got to go home. Man, people got to go home and feed their kids. <laughs> like, it was, uh, yeah, it was life lived in that album. To Pimp a Butterfly was scheduled to be released on March 23rd, 2015. But on the night of March 15th, Sunday, eight days before the official drop date, the full album popped up on Spotify and in the iTunes store. And as fans began to experience this project for the first time, so did many people who'd contributed to the album but had never heard the whole thing. Finally, they were able to understand what they'd been a part of. Yeah, I heard it when the world heard it. <laughs> this is Rhapsody, who has the only guest rap verse on To Pimp a Butterfly. I'm going through all these songs. I'm like, 
yeah, I'm like, God dang, this album is, like, I'm fucking floored. Like, I remember even before it got to my, my verse, I said, man, this is one of the greatest albums ever made. To be a part of that, I could have shed a tear that night. <laughs> I don't think I really saw the the whole scope of it until it was done. Wesley's theory producer, Flying Lotus. I was so impressed with him just as an artist and as a human being for not taking the obvious way and trying something different. And he had a vision. He stuck to his guns. And I, I respect him for that completely. I think it belongs, like, to be honest with you, in the Smithsonian, dude. Co-writer, vocalist, and producer on three Tumpa Butterfly tracks, Taz Arnold. It's something like I've never heard before, honestly. It's very unique and it's, it's masterful. It's beautiful, too. It's a beautiful piece of work for a, a black poet, you know, and for his band of uh, comrades. You feel me? It's like such an offering, dude. And here's TDE president Punch Henderson. I remember being in the car with uh, my guy Scrip. He was on the freeway, just playing at ignorant volumes, <laughs> all the windows down, like really vibing out hard to it it's just that that sense of uh accomplishment we did it it's us right here. we made it again you did not have to be someone who'd played on the album or in punch's case someone who'd been there from the beginning watching it take shape to feel the magnitude of what kendrick and his band had created I was so emotional, especially the first time that I listened to it. Like, I think I was, like, sobbing a few tracks in. Writer and professor Rawia Kamer. I just felt like I was being confronted with so much at the same time. So I was definitely very, very overwhelmed listening to it. I think that's what a lot of people describe as their first experience. But I also remember, like, one of my best friends going out and getting a tattoo of the first line every nigga is a star within like a day or two right so it was overwhelming but it was also profoundly impactful at the same time overwhelming is the right word the finished album clocks in at 78 densely packed minutes as if to immediately render snap judgment impossible nearly everyone who wrote about it seemed to align on at least one point even if Kendrick's reach sometimes exceeded his grasp, this record was a major achievement. Greg Tate, who passed away while we were making this show, was a writer and musician whose work lived, like this album, at the intersection of jazz and funk and hip-hop. In Rolling Stone magazine, in a four-and-a-half-star lead review, Tate wrote, quote, To Pimp a Butterfly is a densely packed, dizzying rush of unfiltered rage and unapologetic romanticism. True crime confessionals, come-to-Jesus sidebars, blunted swing sophistication, scathing self-critique, and rap-quotable riot acts. Roll over Beethoven, tell Thomas Jefferson and his overseer Bull Connor the news, Kendrick Lamar and his jazzy gorilla hands just mob-deeped the new Jim Crow, then stomped a mud hole out that ass. Unquote. Artists from across the spectrum also began praising Kendrick on social media and in interviews. Other rappers like Pusha T, Busta Rhymes, Mac Miller, Twista, YG, and Killer Mike all bowed down. But so did Taylor Swift. And so did living jazz legend Herbie Hancock, who'd played on some of the records that inspired To Pimp a Butterfly. 
He told the Tampa Bay Times he'd been turned on to the album by Flying Lotus and said, it's a great record musically and it tells the truth. And in late 2015, producer Tony Visconti talked to Rolling Stone about working with his longtime friend and collaborator David Bowie on the album Black Star, which would turn out to be the last album Bowie released before he died the following year. We were listening to a lot of Kendrick Lamar, Visconti said. We loved the fact that Kendrick was so open-minded and he didn't do a straight-up hip-hop record. He threw everything on there, and that's exactly what we wanted to do. David Bowie. The star man himself was not only listening to Kendrick's album, he was taking inspiration from it as he prepared to make what would be his final artistic statement before departing this plane of existence. So that's one verdict, the peers and legends verdict. And when people started chanting all right at protest marches and other public demonstrations beginning in the summer of 2015, That was another verdict. At the 58th Annual Grammy Awards, held in February 2016, Kendrick was up for 11 trophies and took home five, more than any other artist, including Best Rap Album and Best Rap Song for All Right. And while To Pimp a Butterfly lost Album of the Year to Taylor Swift's 1989, it was Kendrick who stopped the show, taking the stage in County Blues as part of a chain gang to perform Blacker the Berry before breaking out of the shackles at his wrists and ankles for a triumphant all right. That performance ended with an emotional freestyle in which Kendrick recalls the 2012 killing of Trayvon Martin as if it happened only days ago. On February 26, I lost my life too. It's like a mirror in a dark dream. Nightmare hands screams recorded. Say that it sounded distorted, but I know who it was. That was me yelling for help when he drowned in his blood. Why did he defend himself? Why couldn't he throw a punch? And if a community, do you know what this does? Add to a trail of hatred. 2012 was taken for the world to see. Set us back another 400 years. This is modern day slavery. The reason why I'm by your house. Kendrick had taken a glad handing televised award show where he was the artist to beat and turned it into a platform to underline the traumatic effects of racist violence and mass incarceration. I mean, dude brought a chain gang, a stark visual reminder of the way the modern carceral state kept slavery alive by other means, to the Grammys. This was the kind of thing everyone had been waiting for him to do. It was Kendrick making use of his profile, his charisma, and his gift for storytelling to address the killing of Trayvon Martin and the 400 years of American racism that lay behind it. But he was also grounding what he had to say in the personal, in the feeling of drowning and calling for help. Kendrick's partner Dave Free said that having made an album that fit the mood of one of the darkest passages in recent U.S. history and connected with a protest movement born of deep pain and trauma didn't exactly feel like a victory, but it was a kind of validation. Even though that that's, it was connected to tragedy, like, it's still important because it was for the people. It was, he made it with that intentions in mind. He made it to give it to the people as a gift to the people. That album wasn't the album we celebrated anyway. It wasn't, it was more of a, it was more like the pick and the hammer and carving ourselves into that, to the history books. History is likely to recall this record as a turning point for Kendrick. When Good Kid Mad City came out, it opened the question of what Kendrick would do next. But to Pimp a Butterfly, by sidestepping any perceived obligation to deliver Good Kid Part 2, 
made it clear that Kendrick was up for anything and unafraid to challenge his fan base's expectations. In 2016, Kendrick put out Untitled Unmastered, a 35-minute album of material left over from the Tupimpa Butterfly sessions that doubled down on the original album's night-mode jazz elements. But when the real follow-up, Damn, arrived in 2017, it was completely different. Relaxed and confident and comparatively minimalist, with Kendrick rapping over beats by big-name producers like Mike Will Made It and Ninth Wonder, and spotlighting up-and-coming Universal Music Group recording artists like Rihanna and U2. That album won Kendrick his second Best Rap Album Grammy, not to mention his first Pulitzer Prize. Here's Punch from TDE. The way I sum it up really is Good Kid Mad City was the classic. Uh, The Damn album was a blockbuster. And To Pimp a Butterfly is a masterpiece. Like, that's the legacy of it. It's a masterpiece, for sure. Just with all those different elements, vocally, lyrically, musically, the cohesion of everything, how it impacted the world, you know what I mean? You're going to be all right. Like, I transcended uh, music. Went further and touched something in our um, in our psyche as people. We got to teach our kids the white world and the black world, and we got to enforce it on both levels. Shit don't stop. The hits we drop be on the Soul Music Show on P3 with Mats. All right, this is the real stuff. Swedish radio journalist Mats Nilashar showed me the original Tupac tape over Zoom. It's an actual reel-to-reel tape, a technology that Mats still swears by, but one that was already old school when he recorded the interview in 1994. It says uh, the brand BASF, and then audio broadcast. So Tupac, Thug Life, and it's one, two, three. That sums up to 45 minutes. Many years after the Tupac interview, Mats interviewed Kendrick when Kendrick came through Sweden to perform. This was before To Pimp a Butterfly. Uh, we talked about his ambitions to combine uh, different music forms. He talked about him becoming more and more sort of uh, social conscious in his own words. And uh, his worries about uh, where America was heading. And um, you felt that things were on his mind. When they met, Matt's laid out a bunch of vinyl LPs on the floor as a conversation started. But what I did, though... And I haven't told uh, anybody about this. Uh, I actually threw a couple of my shows on the floor as well. And he asked me, can I snatch all this? Well, don't take the records, but you can take these. And uh, one of these CDs was with a Tupac interview. Wow, so is, is you, that's where he heard it then? That must have been how yeah, he actually, found out about it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I haven't told anybody about that. And then when Kendrick heard it, he was like, oh, shit. That's Dave Free, Kendrick's business partner. When Kendrick decided to use the Tupac tape on To Pimp a Butterfly, it became Dave's job to track down Matt's and secure permission. I got a phone call in the middle of the night, and it was Dave at Top Dog. Uh, And he said, damn, we've been trying to reach you for ages. What have you been doing? Uh, What? 
Well, uh, Kendrick has been looking for for a couple of months. He's been living with the Tupac interview now for two months, and it's going to be a major part of his upcoming stuff. Okay, interesting. Could we use it? Shit. Everybody knew, I knew, that Kendrick's next work would blow up and be something massive. You just knew it. But I said, of course you can use it. Take the motherfucker. (laughs) Use it. Now that I finally got a chance to holler at you, I always want to ask you about a certain situation, about a metaphor, actually. Uh, You spoke on the ground. What you mean by that? What the ground represents? The ground is going to open up and swallow the evil. Right. That's how I see it. My world is born. I see, and the ground is a symbol for the poor people. Right. The poor people is going to open up this whole world and swallow up the rich people. Because the rich people are going to be so fat and, mm. and they're going to be so appetizing. You know what I'm saying? Wealthy. Right. Appetizing. The poor are going to be so hungry. poor and hungry. Right. You know what I'm saying? It's going to be like, you know what I'm saying? It's going to be... I didn't know where he was going with it until I walked in on him having a conversation with Pac and it freaked me out. I was like, bro, what the hell is this? The hair in the back of my neck stood up because it's like, yo, like, and like the shit that he was saying, it just like aligned so well with just the album. Producer Soundwave and mixing engineer Mixed by Ali both remember watching Kendrick working with the tape in the studio. Cutting and pasting. Turning a recording from 20 years ago into a back and forth with Tupac. He would literally be in that room by himself, chopping and pacing and getting everything perfect, like just him. It was it was crazy. It was it was it was crazy. But that that's how we knew that that it's done. You know, hearing those pieces, I'm like, okay, all right, bet. Like it's I get it. I don't think anybody knew it was gonna come like that until you actually did it. I definitely was like, what the heck is going on here? This is critic and professor Rawia Khmer remembering the first time she heard the ending of Mortal Man. Like, I was a little bit thrown, not by the reference to Tupac or the invocation of Tupac, because that has long been a part of Kendrick's blueprint, but just the sort of boldness with which he decided to intersperse his own voice with Tupac's. Like, they are peers here, right? Which is a, a very, very bold move on Kendrick's part. What he does that I think is quite interesting is he seizes on the idea of Tupac being this super complex character to sort of underscore the idea that what some people believe to be contradictions, that is being of the street, but also being concerned about community, um, is actually not contradictory at all, right? So there's this idea of establishing that complexity as a fundamentally powerful thing. Tupac was born June 16, 1971. Kendrick was born June 17, 1987, 16 years and one day later. And when Kendrick was 21, he had a dream. In the dream, he saw a silhouette of Tupac, who by then had been dead for years. And Tupac spoke to him. Tupac said, keep doing what you're doing and don't let my music die. Years later, in an interview, Kendrick would say that this kind of thing had happened before. He dreamed of dead family members, spoken with them. And if that could happen, if those conversations were real, then this one with Pac was too. 
And he said that scared the shit out of him. Because as the poet says, in dreams begin responsibilities. In this country, a black man only have like five years we can exhibit maximum strength. And that's right now, while you're a teenager, while you're still strong, while you still want to lift weights, while you still want to shoot back. Because once you turn 30, it's like they take the heart and soul out of a man, out of a black man in this country. And you don't want to fight no more. And if you don't believe me, you can look around. You don't see no loudmouth 30-year-old motherfuckers. You only see young niggas my age talking like this. If there's a perceptible edge to Tupac's presence in this interview, even by Tupac standards... It's because November 1994 was a chaotic moment in Tupac's life. Within a few weeks, Tupac would be robbed and shot while leaving a recording studio in Manhattan. And he'd be convicted of felony sex abuse charges. Tupac would spend eight months in jail. He would become the first musician to have an album debut at number one while incarcerated. And less than a year after his release, on September 7, 1996... Tupac was shot in a drive-by while leaving a Mike Tyson fight in Las Vegas. And six days later, he died. To this day, no one has been arrested for his murder. Not long before Tupac was killed, he and Dr. Dre shot a video together in Compton at the Compton Swap Meet. The crowd of people who showed up to watch included an eight-year-old Kendrick Lamar Duckworth sitting on his dad's shoulders. So when Kendrick conjures Tupac at the end of To Pimp a Butterfly, there's a lot going on in that moment. It's Kendrick the music scholar, seeking out one last generational black artist as a mentor and a guide, and using Tupac's words to create a piece of theater that highlights a particular side of Tupac that he thinks the world of 2015 needs to hear from. The revolutionary, the messiah the Black Panther's son turned gangsta who still saw clearly that the real fight was against racist oppression. And it's Kendrick as an adult artist, imagining himself getting the chance to compare notes with one of the few people who could understand where he's coming from. And it's Kendrick the fan, Kendrick the acolyte, fantasizing about meeting his childhood hero, having a conversation, even sharing a few jokes. It's the kid from the dream, the kid from the swap meet, saying... I did what you told me to do, and I grew up to be this. Now what do I do? If you guys weren't a messiah, this is kind of what it might look like. Writer and critic Wesley Morris. I mean, the thing that most immediately struck me was the length. Because it didn't seem like a like an add-on. You know, it didn't seem like an outro. It seemed like this was part of the song called Mortal Man. This is the result of the questions that you're still asking. In the first section of Mortal Man, Kendrick raps about channeling Nelson Mandela's ghost and visiting Mandela's cell on Robben Island to find clarity. But that line of thought ends with him talking about how most people fall short of Mandela's example of tenacity and forgiveness. If that part of the song is Kendrick interrogating and ultimately discarding the idea that he can follow in Mandela's footsteps... Maybe this conversation with Tupac is Kendrick trying on another idea of leadership. Maybe he's looking to Pac for a more realistic, attainable model of how to be an artist and a prophet and a bad motherfucker all at once. Except, of course, Tupac's whole rap messiah thing has a lot to do with the way his story ended. He becomes a messiah in death, right? That's not really, that's called a martyr. <laughs> a messiah in death is a martyr. Right. Like 
there is just like we're talking about like three different ways of 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 symbolic being right being a prophet is the most ideal one if you're a creative person because you get to still create without the pressures of being a messiah and without the death of being a martyr <laughs> you know it it's it's the ideal spot from which to critique and self-express and you know the thing about tupac is even this in this sort of from beyond the grave appearance so to speak he's still prophesizing you know he's still offering you know a, a, a picture of doom about the fire next time I think that niggas is tired of grabbing shit out the stores and next time it's a riot it's gonna be like uh, bloodshed for real I don't think America know that I think America think we was just playing it's gonna be some more playing but it ain't gonna be no plan it's gonna be murder you know what I'm saying? It's gonna be like like Nat Turner, 1831, up mm. in this motherfucker. You know what I'm saying? It's, mm. it's gonna happen. He knows what he wants from that interview, and he wants to be able to use Tupac bringing up Nat Turner in 1831 to be like, "This is what's next, MFs. If y'all want to start some stuff, we're not gonna do it this way next time. We're not gonna we're not gonna do anything nice and easy. We're gonna do it rough." I just feel like. He is letting Tupac sort of explain that revolution is coming, right? He sort of outsources the call for revolution. Kendrick Lamar is not a storm the gates, storm the Bastille sort of person. If there's a war going on, it's within him, right? If there's a war going on, it's between these dueling personalities, these competing impulses, this person he knew he was and this person he's become because of the thing that's in him that nobody else has, which is this amazing talent. Um, He is constantly reckoning with himself. But when it comes to this sort of national reckoning, I think he he is asking a person who is perhaps best equipped to... In part because he's no longer living, but also because he was more pugnacious and bellicose as an artist than than Kendrick Lamar. He's outsourcing that energy and that task to Tupac. It's worth pointing out that once Pac has said his piece, Kendrick stops short of agreeing that violent revolution is inevitable. That's crazy, man. In my opinion, only hope that we kind of have left is music and, and vibrations. A lot of people don't understand how important it is. You know, sometimes I can like get behind a mic and I don't know what type of energy I'm gonna push out or where it comes from. You know, trip me out sometimes. Kendrick is not quite ready to let go of his faith in music's ability to change things because in music we can tap into something bigger than ourselves, something not limited by our identity. And then Pac says this. Because of spirits. We ain't even really rapping. We just letting our dead homies tell stories for us. Damn. And that line opens up more questions about the responsibilities of an artist, right? Because if artists are here to be a voice for the dead, the individual doesn't get to choose what to speak about. You can decide whether or not to proclaim yourself a leader or a messiah or tell people to follow you, but you can't turn down the job of prophet. When Tupac says the thing about spirits, Kendrick acts like he doesn't quite know how to respond. So he reads Tupac another poem. When he said a friend of mine wrote something I don't want to read to you, that was actually something that I sent him. The friend who wrote the poem was Punch from TDE. And he read it to Pac on the actual interview. So 
that's always a moment for me. Did you write that? Yeah. Why did you send it to him? What was the impetus? Because it was at a point in this album where he was getting lost. He was getting buried in the concept and the whole idea. And he was like, yo, can you write me something to like really sum up this whole thing, this whole album and where we going with it? So I'm like, yeah, for sure. So I ended up writing that and sending it to him. And he's like, yeah, this is perfect. I wanted to read one last thing to you. It's actually something a good friend had wrote describing my world. It says, the caterpillar is a prisoner to the streets that conceived it. Its only job is to eat or consume everything around it in order to protect itself from this mad city. While consuming this environment, the caterpillar begins to notice ways to survive. One thing it notices is how much the world shuns him, but praises the butterfly. The butterfly represents the talent, the thoughtfulness, and the beauty within the caterpillar. But having a harsh outlook on life, the caterpillar sees the butterfly as weak and figures out a way to pimp it to his own benefits. Already surrounded by this mad city, the caterpillar goes to work on the cocoon which institutionalizes him. He can no longer see past his own thoughts. He's trapped. While trapped inside these walls, certain ideas take root, such as going home and bringing back new concepts to this mad city. The result? Wings begin to emerge, breaking the cycle of feeling stagnant. Finally free, the butterfly sheds light on situations that the caterpillar never considered, ending an internal struggle. Although the butterfly and caterpillar are completely different, they are one and the same. So Kendrick reads his poem, and then he asks Tupac one last question. What's your perspective on that? Pac. 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 Tupac doesn't answer, because he's gone. Or, as in a dream, he was never there. And that's how To Pimp a Butterfly ends. Kendrick has reached the limit of what Tupac has to say to him, figuratively and literally. Tupac embodied contradiction, but he didn't live long enough to figure out how to reconcile those warring parts of himself. His story ends before it gets to the moral. So he can't tell Kendrick how to live with the possibilities and the difficulties of being Kendrick Lamar with what it's like to simultaneously be bigger than Compton and feel like you owe Compton more than you can ever repay. But the end of the Tupac seance is also Kendrick saying to his audience, I can't answer your questions any more than my imagined, idealized version of Tupac can answer mine. I'm in the same boat as you. I live with the same doubts. I too am without a map to lead me through these moments. That honesty about being lost is what Kendrick has to offer on this album, and it's one of the most important things this album had to offer the world. Nowadays, we see these celebrities and we see you know, people that entertain us and we put them on a pedestal like they're not human, especially in today's music. You know, and I feel for you know, my fellow artists because I know what they deal with and what they go through. You know, people who condemn them, they're not necessarily interested in their traumas. 
and their experiences as childs. You know, it's a subject that's in the rap community right now that's not being spoken about, you know, within the DNA and the generational curse within our own family members that's not being talked about. So when I do records like Mortal Man, that's like an extension of what I want to communicate within the culture of my people and just the culture of the world in general that you have to live with flaws and, and learn, you know, to grow from them and learn to heal from them. Yeah. And you're asking something of your audience there as well, mm -hmm. right? You're, you're, you're asking them the question about, you know, almost, uh, which I feel like runs through this whole album. Would, you know, will they stick with you? Will they, will they ride with you? Will yeah. they, you know, what is, the, what is the thing that will make them stop loving you? Mm -hmm. Were those questions on your mind? Yeah, those questions are real, you know, because I'm not perfect. You know, I have my own hiccups, you know, and, and who I am and who, um, and what I'm healing from, you know, and I may get into something that someone doesn't agree with or a situation or an event, you know, so it's kind of question the audience is saying, I'm still human too, you know, but I want to tell you that now because you're still human as well. And I wouldn't place judgment on anyone. That's never been my character, and I always pride myself on that. I can sit in the room with anyone. I don't care who you are, and still find common ground and relate to you from your heart. And um, that was always a question in the back of my head, you know, and being able to express that in the music, it uh, not only helped me, but, you know, it helped my fans when I go out there and I talk to them, they say, thank you for not judging me. We spoke to Kendrick in October of 2021 at a recording studio in Hollywood. We didn't know this when we booked it, but it was a space he'd spent some time in. Have you worked here before? They mentioned that you've been yeah. here. Yeah, I did some of my album here. Which one? The new one? My new one, yeah. Yeah. I locked out this room for a couple weeks. Yeah. Maybe like a month out this, two months out of the last year. Yeah. This room would be set with like keyboards and two guitars and I had the other room just booked for just tracking vocals that was everything Kendrick had to say about the new album depending on when you're listening to this you may know a lot more about said album than we do right now but the image of Kendrick running back and forth between different rooms matches everything we heard about him from his collaborators they described an artist who is always chasing something and who's willing to invest the time it takes to find it, whose process is all-consuming and a little hard to explain, even for the person at the center of it. As Kendrick first told us when we talked about To Pimp a Butterfly, when you guys reached out about doing this, I had to go and revisit that record. And when I revisit that record, it's, I want to say it's like 60% of sounds, vocals, words, tones, uh, lyrics that I don't even know when, where, or how they came from. That's how deep we was in it. That time he actually went in the booth, turned off all the lights, and you just knew something was different. When we interviewed people for this show... Hi. Yeah, we saw the butterfly on our hike. It was so beautiful. One thing they disagreed about... It was when he started studying prints 
was when precisely Kendrick started making To Pimp a Butterfly. The beginning of this project happened when Kendrick was on the Yeezus tour. I feel like it started once he went to Africa. And what was happening when it started? The news is what happened. Motherfuckers getting killed. For, I mean, that year was crazy. That was- Which maybe means there was no point where the process actually began. Yeah, it was life lived in that album. Maybe for an artist like Kendrick, there are no concrete beginnings. Every ending is a new beginning. And as Punch from TDE points out, on this one, there was also no ending. Three days after I came out, I went back to the Tom Tom room for something. And I go in the, in the, in the studio section and Kendrick in there on the couch. I'm like, yo, what are you doing? Like, why are you in here? He's like, I'm still working on my album. I'm like, yo, this dude is crazy. Like, he's out in the world already. Gone. From Higher Ground, this is The Big Hit Show. It's written and hosted by me, Alex Papadimus, and produced by Western Sound. Colin McNulty is our showrunner. Producers are Taylor Jones and Sabrina Fang. Our production assistant is Stella Hartman. Production help from Cameron Kell. Alex McGinnis is our composer, sound designer, and mix engineer. Savannah Wright is our fact checker. Studio direction and theme music by Dan Leone. The executive producer is Ben Adair. Executive producers for Higher Ground are Dan Fearman, Anna Holmes, Mukta Mohan, and Janae Marable. Jen Eleven is our editorial assistant. Executive producers for Spotify are Daniel Eck, Don Ostroff, Julie McNamara, and Corinne Gilliard. Music licensing by Search Party Music and Pilot Music Business Services. Special thanks to the team at PG Lang, Dave Free, Cornell Brown, Jamie Rabineau, and Naya Morton. Special thanks to Joe Paulson and Eric Spiegelman. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.